Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's have uh, some silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and study on the word of God this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the privilege and opportunity to meet freely in this nation, that our freedom was bought with a price. The freedom that we have politically reflects the freedom that we have spiritually that was bought with the tremendous price at the cost of the life of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we were redeemed, not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. Now, Father, as we study your word, may we be mindful that this is your revelation to us, that from it we might gain insight, encouragement, and spiritual strength. We might gain an understanding of your working in history, that we might be encouraged in our own spiritual walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 49, which is one of the great chapters of the Bible. This I remember the first time I ever heard anyone teach this chapter. I must have been in college, and I was uh, thrilled with it. It's a chapter filled with all kinds of interesting little insights and prophecy related to the nation Israel. And as we go through Genesis chapter 49, it's almost like having a survey of Old Testament history or a survey of Israel's history, because in this one chapter prophecy, Jacob is going to give us such an outline of the future of Israel. Its purpose was to encourage the, his sons with their future, but in the, the blessing, he clearly reveals uh, certain negative traits, negative characteristics, things that will happen that were not of the most uh, complimentary kind. But it does give an accurate portrayal of the future for the nation of Israel. Now, last time, as we began this last section, last little section in Jacob's life, this is his final uh, testimony. This is his final will and testimony as he is bestowing the blessing on the firstborn, which is a double portion, which in this case went to the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, they would replace Reuben, as we will see, who was indeed the firstborn in terms of chronology and should have been the firstborn in terms of priority and inheritance to receive the double portion. But because of his failure, he lost that position, that blessing, and it was given instead to the younger, uh, fulfilling the principle that 
God was using during the patriarchal period that the elder would serve the younger, demonstrating that God's ways are different from our ways. He was not going to follow the typical human procedure of the eldest son being the one who received the honor and glory through the principle of primogenitor, but that he would follow a, a different principle and the younger would be the one who would receive the blessing. In the previous chapter, in chapter 48, we saw Israel, that is Jacob, bestowing this final blessing, the double portion of the uh, inheritance of the firstborn on Joseph's two sons. He adopts them as his own, and it would be through them and their descendants that there would be two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus, you don't find a tribe of Joseph when you go to the, to go to the Old Testament or look at maps of the tribal allotments, there's no tribe of Joseph. You have the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Manasseh, and that the northern kingdom later on after the division actually sometimes is referred to as Ephraim. It's referred to as Israel, the name for the northern kingdom, and sometimes even the name of Joseph is invoked to represent the northern kingdom, whereas the southern kingdom is identified by the primary tribe of Judah, who would represent the tribe from whence the ruling family, the family of David, uh, would come. So we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 49.1, and we see that after the meeting with Joseph and his two sons, Jacob then has a subsequent meeting where he gathers all of the sons together, this includes Jacob. It doesn't indicate that Ephraim and Manasseh were there. It includes all of his sons, though, from Reuben, the firstborn, to Benjamin, who was the last one to be born. Jacob, we're told, called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. And in verse 2, he said, he goes on to say, uh, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father. It's a repetition reinforcement of the first verse. Now in this initial verse, there's one significant phrase and that is the phrase last days. Whenever most people in our culture that have come out of any kind of background where they've been exposed to Bible prophecy or dispensationalism, whenever they hear the word last days, there's this knee-jerk reaction that last days refers to something related to unfulfilled prophecy, something that is still future to us, still out there in front of us. But it's not always used that way. We have a couple of uses of the phrase last days in the Old Testament that are a little bit different. In Numbers 24:14, Balaam is speaking, says, um, says, Now indeed I am going to my people, come, I will advise you what this people, that is the Jews, will do to your people, that is the Moabites, in the latter days. Now this isn't talking about the latter days of Israel. Always remember when you, when we come to this phrase, latter days prophetically, that you have two different references. There is a latter days for the church, which describes the entire church age, is in the last days. 
Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, in the, one verse 2, in these last days God has spoken through Jesus Christ. So last days is a term that refers to the entire church age. But when it's talking about Israel, the term latter days frequently refers to Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, that final period related to Israel in terms of prophecy. But that's not what it's referring to in Numbers 24:14. Here it is an idiom for a time distant in the future, not necessarily in times, but a time that is yet distant to us. Hosea chapter 3 verse 5 we have the phrase again where Hosea says afterward the children of Israel afterward what? After their divine discipline under the fifth stage of discipline where they're scattered throughout the whole earth. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. Now, that has not been fulfilled historically. That is a yet future reference. So in this particular verse, it refers to the latter days and the time frame related to Israel. So you definitely have a technical use of latter days referring to the end times of God's plan for Israel, but the phrase is also used as it is in Daniel 2.28 in a prophetic passage where it simply refers to uh, a future time, something in the, in the distant future. Daniel 2.28 we read, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. Now, of course, that began with his own kingdom and ultimately extended out through the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans to the ultimate destruction of that uh, great statue. So it does relate to uh, the whole flow of Israel's future history there in Daniel, uh, Daniel 2.28. Now, at the conclusion of our section... In Genesis 49:28 there is a summary statement. All these, that is the all these 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where they derive their their names from Reuben and Simeon and Le- Levi and Judah and Gad and Dan and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Ephraim and Benjamin. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Three times in that particular verse, you have the use of this Hebrew word, barak, which is where the word beracha for blessing comes from. And it's used 75 times in the book of Genesis because the book of Genesis is a book that describes the magnificent blessing of God in human history at the beginning. Another word that's frequently used with it is cursing because there's this dual theme in Genesis of the blessing of God, his provision for life and happiness and stability, and yet man's disobedience and the consequent judgment of God on that particular sin. So blessing is a primary theme in Genesis. It's used 75 times in the book of Genesis, seven times in these two chapters, chapter chapters 48 and 49 and, and Jacob's final uh, bestowal of inheritance to his, his sons. And of course, it's used three times in this particular verse. So it's only used four of the times 
in these two chapters. But that emphasizes for us this idea of blessing, that this was something positive and it was related ultimately. When you hear that word blessing after Genesis 12:1 through 3, it ties back to the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham and his descendants were to be a blessing and they were to be a blessing to all the nations because God blessed them. God uh, gave them that which was profitable for life. And that's the uh, idea in, that we have in the word blessing. So the summary is that this is a blessing. It's also referred to by many as a prophecy because it foretells the future, although the word Prophecy, per se, is not not used here. He foretells the future. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 11.21, we have another reference to this particular event, and there we have the word blessing used again. Uh, By faith, we're told, that is, by means of the doctrine that he has in his soul and by trusting in God's revelation to him by means of relying upon that promise that God gave to Abraham, promise him land, seed, and blessing. Everybody knows that by now. Land, seed, and blessing. Jacob trusts in God and his provision. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped uh, leaning on the top of his staff. So this is a reference back to his uh, blessing of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh and his worship. And the idea of worship there is that word we studied on Sunday morning, proskuneo, which has the idea of uh, literally uh, prostrating yourself before someone in authority. Uh, Spiros Zuriati says that it has an original meaning of ki- throwing a kiss towards someone in forms of a greeting that if it in the Persian uh, culture, the if the two people were of equal equal ranks, they would kiss each other on the lips. Uh, when the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. And when one person was inferior to the other, he would fall upon his knees, touch his forehead to the ground, or prostrate himself, throwing kisses at the same time toward the superior. That's the idea of worship. It is the idea of being recognizing your completely your complete inferior status to God and recognizing that God is the one who's completely in authority. So it is related to the idea of recognizing our submission, our subordination, our recognition of God's authority in our life, and as a result of that, honoring and glorifying God because He is the creator of all things, and He is the one who is the source of life and happiness. So Jacob worships God here, and I think in the context of Genesis, it's related to that idea that we saw back in Genesis uh, 23 and 24 when uh, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And as he's going, the servant prays to God that he would lead him to the woman who would be Isaac's wife. And when he comes and he comes to the well and he discovers her, he bows his head and worships. And it's, it's the idea of giving thanks to God. So that worship includes a wide range of activities. And in our study of worship on Sunday morning, I have defined worship as uh, the act of submitting or subordinating my opinions, uh, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotions, relationships, attitudes, actions, uh, 
time, priorities, all to the authority of God's word. Thus, worship is a complex idea which involves a number of aspects from private prayer to public expressions of thanks and the singing of hymns which reinforce and reflect on God, his character, his person, his works in history, his works in our lives. It also involves bringing sacrifices and gifts to God as well as personal Christian service. Worship can be individual or corporate. Worship involves prayer. It involves praise. It involves obedience, service, thanksgiving, or the study of God's Word. It is a very broad concept. It's been so uh, minimized and watered down in our culture by using it as a synonym for singing, and we need to uh, resist that as much as possible. It's almost become synonymous with singing in, in everyday Christian uh, vernacular today. Now, the focus of the blessing that Jacob is giving his sons relates to the faithfulness of God. What he is doing is he is passing on that which has been handed down to him from his uh, grandfather Abraham to his father Isaac and then restated to himself. And now he's passing on that there is this flow that God promised to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, that God encapsulated this in a formal covenant signing ceremony. He reaffirmed it many times to Abraham. Then when Isaac became an adult, it was reaffirmed with Isaac in Genesis 26. And then with Jacob, it was reaffirmed several times, primarily when he was going out of the land at Bethel before he spent those 20 years uh, sort of... Uh, in service to Laban up in Haran and Padanaram. And then he returned, and there was the episode at Peniel. There's the episode at Bethel again when he comes and rebuilds the altar there. All of these times God restates, reaffirms the, the Abrahamic covenant with each of these descendants. And it's very important because we live in an era today when people want to minimize uh, the importance of the Jews and minimize the importance of this uh, unending contract, that it is a permanent covenant. Sometimes there's a lot of debate today over the use of the term conditional or unconditional because there are conditions even in unconditional covenants. In other words, there are conditions upon the Jews that they're not going to experience the blessings of even the Abrahamic covenant unless they're obedient to God. But their disobedience doesn't nullify the Abrahamic covenant. The real difference between the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, a real estate covenant, Palestinian covenant, the uh, new covenant is that they're permanent. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, those four covenants are permanent. They cannot be revoked. Whereas the Mosaic covenant was always understood to be temporary in nature. It wasn't permanent. We'll see that as we get into uh, Hebrews chapter 8 because that's the whole argument in Hebrews chapter 8 is that the reason it was called the Old Covenant was because it was considered temporary and we were there was going to be a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, that would replace the Old Covenant. So it was clearly understood within the Old Testament that that the Mosaic Covenant was temporary and it was not a permanent covenant. So the idea was 
for, for that Jacob is passing this on to his sons that even though we are out of the land, God won't forget us. Perhaps as they gathered around and he's about to die, they're thinking about their future. If God has forgotten them, if God is going to abandon them into the land of Egypt. And often that's the case with many believers. They think, well, I haven't heard anything from God in a while. Nothing seems to be happening in my life. Uh, I've been out of fellowship. I've been in carnality. Well, has God just completely forgotten about me? Maybe they're wondering if God has somehow uh, forgotten his promise or abandoned his promise to the Abrahamic family because of their carnality and because of their disobedience. And so Jacob is going to remind them of the permanence of God's promise to Abraham and also remind them that God had foretold to Abraham that they were going to be out of the land for a particular time period. And it may not have been completely appreciated by Abraham, but this would have been passed on from father to son to grandson. Genesis fifteen thirteen, God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and, uh, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. They, so these sons of Jacob would be aware of this particular prophecy and recognize that perhaps they are at the beginning of this 400-year period. Perhaps it's not recorded, but perhaps Jacob reminded them of this uh, prophecy that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. Genesis 15:14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possession. I'm sure that this doctrinal promise which in a temporal setting is like a a personal sense of destiny because they knew that God promised a deliverer and that God would take them out of the land and that God would punish the nation that put them into servitude. And during the darkest days of that time in Egypt when they were under the heel of the Egyptian authorities and as they were persecuted and as, as the Pharaoh is trying to kill all of the uh, sons, the babies that are being born, they would hold on to this promise, and this would get them through those dark periods that God would provide a future for them. They would come out with great possessions, and so there is a promise uh, given to Abram back in Genesis fifteen sixteen that in the fourth generation they would return to the promised land because it was God's grace toward the Amorite, the Canaanites, God was extending grace to them that they weren't, they had not reached the end of the rope yet in terms of their own carnality. And God could have justly had them destroyed, had the Canaanites wiped out generations earlier, but God always continues to extend grace, to extend grace. He is not one who is quick to judge and, and to destroy. So as the brothers gathered together, around Jacob. Uh, Jacob is answering these questions and he is telling them that God's promise to the seed, God's promise that there would be a future, God's promise to Abram that he would be making a great nation from the descent from his descendants has not been forgotten. It's not been abrogated. It's still in effect and God is going to make a great uh, nation of them. And so the prophecy is designed to encourage people. And that's another point. The principle to remember is that prophecy wasn't given to satisfy people's curiosity about the future. 
the prophecies given to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, all the rest of them, those prophecies weren't given to satisfy people's curiosity about what's going to happen in the future. And that's how people today often uh, superficially approach the study of prophecy or eschatology is, are we living in the last days? Is Jesus going to come back next week? What are the signs of the times and all these silly questions? Prophecy was d- given to encourage people with the fact that God has a plan and a purpose. And even in your darkest days, even when the whole civilization around you may be crumbling as it was at the time of Daniel, as it was at other times in Jewish history. It was certainly for uh, the generation after uh, after Joseph that uh, is the one spoken of where the a new Pharaoh came along and didn't remember Joseph and enslaved the Jews. That was a dark period in their history. What would stabilize them is the same thing that stabilizes us, and that is the principle of God's control of history. And through prophecy, God was showing that he had a future plan, that certain things would take place, that there would be times uh, of catastrophe, times of calamity, times of divine discipline, but that didn't mean that God was out of control. So that if we live in a nation that comes under divine discipline, if we come under in a nation where there's attacks and with the constant threat of terrorism, if we live in a nation that where a nuclear attack takes place or a dirty bomb goes off or any number of the other horrible threats that seem to loom on our horizon, that if any of those things take place, and, and people don't realize just the slender thread on which our whole civilization hangs, we're in such massive debt in this country that just a, uh, another event like uh, what happened on 9-11, something worse than that, if anything happens with a dirty bomb, uh, the confidence, I mean, the, our economy is only as good as the confidence people have in a piece of paper because there's nothing behind the American dollar other than our, our confidence in the government. And if there's something like that happens and people's confidence is shaken, all kinds of things can happen. The, the, the effect of that can reverberate through our whole civilization. And if things were to come tumbling down, as they have in other countries and other nations as they did with Israel in the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and in the southern kingdom in 586, there was one thing that believers could count on, and that was that God had a plan. And even though the plan includes a lot of hard times personally for us, there's still a plan, and we are to relax in God's plan and fulfill our mission and objective as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can also include just personal crises that come our way. We never, ever know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may be feeling fine today, and tomorrow you wake up and you have terminal cancer. Or tomorrow you wake up and uh, your spouse has a major stroke. Uh, Any kinds of things can happen. You could wake up tomorrow and not have a job and not have a job for another two or three years. So many things can happen that throw us into a place of dependence upon God. And that's really the purpose of prophecy, is to remind us that, that not to get so focused on the immediate problems and catastrophes and adversities in our own life, but to realize that, that God has a plan and a purpose and God is, God is in control. So the prophecy is designed to encourage 
the sons and their sons and their descendants after them, that God would not forget them in the land of Egypt, that God had a future for them, and that it, this revelation would sustain them in times and the time of their future enslavement. It would also be confirmation of of the truthfulness of God's revelation as both the good and the bad in these prophecies would work them their way out in the lives of of the tribes because these are not necessarily good uh, prophecies. I mean, there's some things said about what's going to happen to some of them that we wouldn't want that to be said about us. It's not very complimentary. It exposes their failures and flaws as well as uh, some of their, their strengths and their positive uh, things. Uh, so we come to these 12 sons. And before we do that, I want to go through this chart on the line of the sea just to go back and, and get back into our heads the genealogy of Abraham's family. We had the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham married Sarah, who was indeed a, a half-sister. When Sarah tried to get him to fulfill God's promise on his own, he uh, had a son through Hagar, who was Ishmael, who was the eldest. And then the promised seed came, Isaac, and Ishmael would serve Isaac. The elder would serve the younger. Then Isaac married Rebekah, and they had twins. Esau was the elder, Jacob the youngest, and again the elder served the younger. And the seed and the promise and the covenant passed through Jacob. Jacob, of course, went um, went back to the family homestead in Padan Aram, and he got tricked into marrying Leah before he married uh, Rachel. Through Leah, he had initially four sons. Rachel was barren, and the firstborn was Reuben, quickly followed in succession by Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Then Leah was not able to get pregnant anymore, and so Rachel, still being barren, gave her concubine, or gave her handmaiden, Bilhah, as a concubine, and through Bilhah, two more sons were born, Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah, not to be outdone, a little competition in the, in the, uh, <clears throat> in the home, she gave her handmaiden, Zilpah, to Jacob, and through whom he had two sons, Gad and Asher. Then Leah had two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. Then Rachel had, had Joseph. And then uh, last, last, Benjamin. And she died in childbirth when she gave birth to Benjamin. Now, as we look at the order of the prophecies in, in uh, Genesis chapter 49... You're going to see that they're they're grouped according to their mothers, not necessarily in chronological order, but in some, uh, but grouped according to mother, the, the mothers. So initially we have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah are mentioned, and then after the prophecy to Judah in verse 13, uh, or yeah, verse 13, Zebulun, and then 14, Issachar. So those two are in reverse order from their birth, but all the sons of Leah are dealt with first. And then the four sons of the concubines are dealt with, but not in birth order or the order of their mothers. 
Uh, Dan is first in 16 and 17, 18, 19. Asher comes up in uh, 20. Naphtali in 21. I'm going to skip Gad. Gad was 19. So you had uh, 16 to 18 is Dan. 19 is Gad. Then uh, 20 is Asher and 21 is Naphtali. And then in conclusion in 22 we have Joseph, which is an extended prophecy 22 to 26, and then Benjamin in 27. So these are the 12 sons of Jacob that come together for this tremendous prophecy and outline of the future for the nation Israel. So we come to our first blessing, our first prophecy related to Reuben. Now, Reuben is a name that initially meant behold a son. And this was the name that Leah gave him because as as she had this son, she she saw that uh, God had blessed her, and so she called him uh, Reuven. And Jacob says, Reuven, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. As the firstborn, he was the one that the hopes and dreams of the culture would be, be, be on him. The hopes, the, the culture always focused on that firstborn, so he would be the might and the beginning of Jacob's strength. And he said, the excellence of dignity and the excellency of power. In other words, all the hope was on you. You were the firstborn. You were the one who was, was the, the, the focal point for everything on that firstborn, but nevertheless, he failed. He is unstable as water, verse 4. Doesn't live up to the expectation or the potential. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Not only is he un- unstable, but he would go to mediocrity, mediocrity and failure. He would not excel, which is almost a uh, reverse of saying you're going to fail. Said so you would not excel because you went up to your father's bed. In other words, you defiled it. He had he seduced uh, Bilhah, who was the uh, concubine of Rachel, and as a result, he brought shame and embarrassment upon upon the household. So the first point when we talk about Reuben is that Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob and Leah, according to Genesis uh, 29, 31, and 32. There we, we read, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben because she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. As the mother of the firstborn, she would be in a position and status of uh, privilege and, and blessing within the household. Second point about Reuben is that as the firstborn son, he was due the double portion. In the ancient world, the firstborn got the double portion, according to Deuteronomy 21.17. But he shall acknowledge the son. In this case, it's a case of an unloved wife, which, of course, Leah was. He shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. So with twelve sons, what would normally happen is that Jacob would divide up everything thirteen ways. 
and two of them would go to the firstborn. But what happened in this case is that double portion went to Joseph through and to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Reuben was due the double portion of the firstborn son, which he lost, which he forfeited by his carnality. Now, there's an application there to believers in the church age that we can forfeit our inheritance rights as firstborn sons through our carnality. This is what happens at the judgment seat of Christ when we have wood, hay, and straw, and that's burned up, and there's no rewards that are given rather than exercising our rights and privileges as royal family of God and and pursuing spiritual maturity where there's divine good and there's uh, gold, silver, and precious stones produced so that there's uh, that which is rewardable. There is failure. What makes the difference between that which is rewardable and that which is not, what makes the difference between uh, doing one thing that produces, that is considered gold, silver, precious stones, and doing the same thing, and it's wood, hay, and straw. You can witness, and it's wood, hay, and straw, because you're doing it in the power of the flesh. Or you can witness, and it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. What makes a difference is whether or not you're in fellowship. Confession of sins, restoration of fellowship, so that the Holy Spirit is the one energizing and empowering you, rather than your own uh, sin nature. So this is the analogy that as believers... We can do the same thing Esau did. We can sell our birthright for a a mess of pottage, for carnality, for human viewpoint, for making sure that we have all the pleasures of this day and age, and instead of focusing on eternality, having a personal sense of our eternal destiny. So Reuben sacrificed the double portion of his position because of his own carnality. His sin led to a loss of that firstborn status as described in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. There we read, now the sons of Reven, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Reuben isn't listed first. Joseph is. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers. Judah gets the leadership blessing. Joseph got the inheritance blessing. We'll see Judah next time when we come to the a third statement. The first one's Reuben, the second one's going to be Simeon and Levi linked together, and then Judah is the third. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers. Despite early carnality, there was real change. Sometimes we think, well, people can't change. Well, often they don't. But the grace of God gives people that which they need to truly change. Judah changed. He prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler. So the birthright goes to Joseph, leadership will go to Judah. Reuben lost the double portion because of his instability. And that was recorded in Genesis thirty-five twenty-two, where we're told about him uh, having sexual relations with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Now, Israel heard about it, but he didn't say anything at that time. He kept it to himself. The other brothers apparently didn't know about this. And yet Judah, I mean Jacob, kept it 
to himself for the next 20 to 25 years. That's how long it's been. And now after 25 years, perhaps Reven thought that thought that he had gotten away with this or that there would be no consequences, and now come the consequences. We never really get away with carnality. There are always failures and there are consequences, though God's grace always provides for recovery, which is what we see at the end of this episode with Reven. So though uh, 25 years had gone by, now Reuben would deal with the consequences. As a result, the prophecy says that he will go on and instability will characterize his descendants, his tribe. Those who come forth from him would never make their mark in the history of Israel. You look in vain for any uh, heroes, any leaders, any prophets, any priests. Of course, they only come from the tribe of Levi. You look in vain for any military leaders, any great teachers, anyone of significance from the tribe of Reuben, and there are none. In fact, he almost disappears from history, as we will see. In the New Testament, in Jude 1.11, there's a statement, Woe to them, that is, those who are unbelievers, these who are apostate, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, the rebellion of Korah is when we first really see a negative related to um, related to the descendants of Reuben. This takes place in Numbers chapter 16. So, turn in your Bibles over to the fourth book in the Pentateuch, book of Numbers. Numbers involved the rebellion of Korah, who was a Levite and a priest, and he was leading a rebellion, a conspiracy against the divinely established leadership of Moses and Levi. And he has two co-conspirators, Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram are descendants of Reven. We read in number 16.1, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reven, took action. So they are from this, the tribe of Reuben, the descendants of Reuben, and they lead this revolt against God. And God deals harshly and strongly with them, and the ground opens up and swallows up all of the uh, conspirators as they have tried to overthrow the leadership that, that God has established. We look down to um, later on in the chapter, down to verse 20 and following, and the Lord is going to consume those who have led this revolt against uh, Moses and against, uh, against Aaron. Next time we see a mention of the tribe of Reuben, it's in Numbers chapter 32. So we can just turn over to the, at the end of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 32, and we see the allotment of the land. Now, between the beginning of Numbers and the end of Numbers, we have a, a shift of generations. Numbers is called Numbers because there are two uh, censuses, or is it sensi? There are two censuses taken 
in the book of Numbers. The first is to number all the men 20 years and older as they come out from Sinai and prepare to go to uh, the promised land. And there's about 650,000 males over the age of 20 identified in that generation. But that generation failed at Kadesh Barnea. And so God said that none of them, with the exception of the two obedient uh, spies, Caleb and Joshua, none of them would be able to enter into the land. Again, they forfeited their inheritance rights by sin. They didn't lose salvation, but they weren't going to be allowed the privilege of entering in into the land. And so when the second generation, the wilderness generation, grew up, they had to have another census, another accounting of males over the, over the age of 20. In Numbers 32, we're near the end of this period as they're about to come to the, uh, to the border uh, on, uh, on the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. And in Numbers chapter 32, we see the allotment of for the Reubenites. And here's a map, which I chose this not because you could read it very well, but because it was so colorful, you could easily see the... T- the territories. And it's this area right, here's the Dead Sea right here, and this area to the northeast of the Dead Sea is the territory that was allotted to the tribe of Reven, and that is the smallest tribe. Today that is in the uh, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. This is in an area just north of where uh, Petra lies. This is a an area on the east side of the Jordan from the uh, Arnon River, in about, which is about halfway down the east side of the Dead Sea up to where, up to just the top of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River uh, flows into the Dead Sea. It's the former kingdom of Sihon. Eventually, this territory just becomes absorbed by Arabs, Arab tribes, and Reuven's inheritance is lost. He just about disappears from, from history. These three tribes on the east side of the Jordan, that's also called the Transjordan. That's a term that is obviously with reference to being on the uh, promised land side of the Jordan, the west side of the Jordan, because trans means across. So this is a territory that is across the Jordan. So the Transjordan refers to the east side of the Jordan. The Cisjordan refers to the territory on the west side of the Jordan. There were uh, two full tribes. There was there was Reuven and Gad, and uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh were impatient. They didn't want to wait for God's best and cross the river. They wanted to just hurry up and take what they could get on the east side. But nevertheless, God said, you can have this, but you're still going to have to fight with your brothers to secure the land on the west side of the Jordan. Now, we have them mentioned in in Numbers chapter 32 and their settlement there on, uh, on the east side of the Jordan. And then they're mentioned again in Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 5 is the song of Deborah. This is her victory song after she and Barak have defeated the uh, armies under, uh, under Sisera. 
And so there, chapter 4 describes the fact that, that the land was under the uh, oppression of uh, General Sisera and um, they defeat them. And then Deborah writes a hymn of praise, a victory song in chapter 5. And she references uh, the fact that all the tribes came together when leaders led in Israel when the people willingly offered themselves, bless the Lord. The nation came together to defeat uh, Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, his general, except for the Reubenites. In verse 16, she says, Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? See, they're unstable as water. They can't make up their minds. Should we go fight? No. Will they take care of it? I don't know. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. In other words, they're double-minded, kind of like James chapter 1. They, they can't figure out what they want to do, where their loyalties lie. And so that was always a problem. We see at this same period of time, or, or just prior to this actually in Numbers, there's a shift in their population and and Numbers 120, their population was 46,500 according to the first census. But at the end of the wilderness wanderings, their population had decreased to 43,730. So it appears that, that something's going on and they're diminishing in size such that in Deuteronomy 33 verse 6, Moses prayed to God, let Reven live and not die, nor let his men be few. So there's this trend that's working out in history related to the tribe of Reven. Eventually, the tribe fell into apostasy and was taken into captivity in approximately 722 B.C. by Tiglath-Pileser of the Assyrians, and this is described in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. They're referring to the northern kingdom were told they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and they played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those are all those Transjordan tribes, were carried into captivity. He took them to Halahavor Hara and the river of Gozen to this day. That was in 722. About 100 years before that, in 830, uh, we have uh, discovered in archaeology a stone called the Moabite stone, which has various inscriptions on it. And the tribe of Gad was mentioned then, but not the tribe of Reuven. See, their significance was just waning. It, they, they had no contribution to the ancient uh, kingdom. However, God's grace has not forgotten them. God's grace never forgets us. Just because we're disobedient, just because we're failures, just because we've committed some sin, doesn't mean God's grace has forgotten us. There is a future plan for the tribe of Reuben. This is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 7 and 31. Ezekiel 48, 7 and 31. There is an allotment in the future kingdom of, uh, in the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Israel, there is a tribal allotment for the for the tribe of Reuben. 
Furthermore, they are also numbered among the 144,000 in Revelation 7, verse 5. Now, we haven't gotten there yet in our study in Revelation on uh, Sunday morning, but sometime not long after the uh, rapture of the church, the beginning of the tribulation, 144,000 from uh, Jews are saved, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, including the tribe of Reuben. These 12,000 Jews show that there is a shift from the emphasis on the church, which is raptured, to an emphasis on Israel and the fulfillment of these blessings on Israel and all of the covenant promises made back in Leviticus 26 and 28 that God would bring the nation back into the land. So even though there's discipline, even though there is a failure on the part of Reven, there's God's grace that has a plan for them in the future. Just because they, that we fail doesn't mean we uh, lose the grace of God. We can never sin so much that we can't come back to God's grace and God's provision. Uh, so one thing we can learn from Reven is even though there's failures, even though there's there's instability, even though there's there's inadequacy, nevertheless God's grace is such that he freely bestows upon them a future and there will be a time of blessing in the future. Now next time we'll come back and look at the next set. Simeon and Levi are linked together. The text says they're brothers. Well of course they're brothers. They're brothers with uh they were brothers with with um Reven, they're brothers with Judah, they're brothers with Zebulun, Naphtali, they have the, the same mother and father. It's more than that. They were as a partnership. There was a shared mentality between Simeon and Levi. And they are, uh, there's a curse here, judgment on them because of what they had done earlier with the Shechemites. And then we'll, of course, get into the blessing on Judah and the promise of the royal scepter not departing from the tribe of Judah. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thanks for this time together to study your word, to be reminded of your grace. Uh, your control in history, your uh, supervision of our lives, and that even though things may appear to be out of control at times, nevertheless, everything is under your control. And even though there's failure on our part, your grace overrides that failure. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.